0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: Carlisle. However, his election had been quashed a month later. Airmen knew Isabella well... They'd worked closely together in 1321 when sharing custody of the Great Seal. John the Twenty Second now proved most accommodating and expeditious, providing airmen to the vacancy of Norwich on July 19th. However, in England, four days later, King Edward's candidate, Robert Baldock, was elected by the chapter of Norwich as their bishop. He received his temporalities from the king on August 25th. Edward's intention of going to France to pay homage had been implicit in his ratification of the new treaty. By August 15th, arrangements had been made for the ceremony at Beauvais, and the king began to prepare for his journey. But the dispensers were filled with trepidation at the prospect of his going abroad and leaving them at the mercy of their enemies, and were also unwilling to afford Isabella any opportunity of regaining her influence with her husband. Thus, when the proposed visit was debated in council, opinion was divided as to the wisdom of the king leaving his realm at this time. But Lester, who was in favour of his going, carried the day. On August 23rd, Edward arrived in Dover with his eldest son, ready, to all intents and purposes, to depart. But the dispensers continued to urge him not to leave England. The next day, Edward suddenly announced that he was too ill to travel and that he was sending a new embassy, headed by Richmond and Stratford, to France to make different arrangements. Knowing that Dispenser would be left behind in England, Isabella may have been looking forward to Edward's visit as an opportunity to lay before him her grievances about Hugh and the treatment she'd suffered. She might even have planned to offer him an ultimatum that either the favourites were dismissed or she stayed in France, and she may have counted on or been promised the support of Charles IV in these negotiations but Edward wasn't coming now. It must have been at this point that Isabella conceived a scheme whereby the terms of the treaty could be met, and she herself would, at the very least, be able to wield the upper hand in any confrontation with Edward over the dispensers. It would also remove her eldest son out of the orbit and control of the favourites. On September 1st, the Queen returned to Paris to meet with Richmond and Stratford. The following evening, she entertained the Bishop to dinner and suggested to him that Prince Edward be given all his father's continental possessions and be sent to pay homage in his stead. This, as we've seen, was not a new idea, but one that had been mooted the previous winter by Charles the Fourth. Presciently, On the same day that Isabella was dining with Stratford, Prince Edward was being invested as Count of Pontieux and Montre as his mother's heir, at Langdon Abbey near Dover. In France, Isabella was to protest against this, whereupon Charles IV assured her that the homage done by the prince her son for these counties would not in any way prejudice her interests therein. Stratford and Isabella put the Queen's suggestions to Charles IV, who, on September 4th, issued letters-patent in which he agreed to accept the homage of the Prince. Whereupon Stratford hastened back to England to obtain the King's approval. Some of Edward's advisers were of the opinion that his son would be vulnerable to all manner of misfortunes if he were exposed to the wily and avaricious French without the protection of his father. Those who argued thus were indeed justified. But the dispensers were greatly in favour of the idea, for they dared neither to cross the channel with King Edward nor to remain behind in England in his absence. Rashly, therefore, Edward II agreed to send his son to France in his stead, little realising that by allowing his heir to go overseas to his mother he was placing in Isabella's hands a hostage to fortune. On September 10th, the twelve-year-old prince was created Duke of Aquitaine. Two days later, in the company of bishops Stratford and Stapledon, Henry de Beaumont and a number of lords and knights, he boarded a vessel for France. Before it sailed, his father made him promise that he would not accept any guardian nor enter into any marriage alliance without the king's permission. Negotiations were well advanced for the prince's marriage to the infanta Eleanor of Aragon. At the same time, Edward was planning to marry one of his own daughters to Pedro, the heir of James II, king of Aragon, and applications had already been made to the pope for the necessary dispensations. Naturally, The king didn't wish to prejudice this hoped-for alliance. The prince told his father that it should be his pleasure to obey his commandments as far as he could all his days. When young Edward's ship dropped anchor at Boulogne on September 14th, his mother was waiting to greet him and take him with her to Paris. Isabella must have been overjoyed to see her son, but not so pleased to discover that Stratford had brought with him a safe conduct for her from the King, who had commanded her to return home without delay as soon as the Prince had performed his homage. Evading this issue, Isabella turned her attention to the imminent consecration of the new Bishop of Norwich. A few days earlier, much to Edward's chagrin, Robert Baldock had been obliged by the Pope to resign from the See of Norwich in favour of William Ehrman. Twice now, thanks to Isabella's influence, Baldock, that close associate of the Dispensers, had been deprived of high episcopal office, despite being the King's nominee. Isabella was well aware how furious Edward and the Dispensers would be at the success of her candidate, William Ehrman, and to ensure that no further obstacles were placed in his way, she arranged for Ehrman to be consecrated Bishop of Norwich at a ceremony in France on September fifteenth, for which the king was angry. By then, however, it was too late for Edward to do anything about it, apart from vengefully refusing to allow Ehrman the temporalities of his see. On September 22nd, the Queen and her son arrived in Paris and Isabella witnessed the young Duke of Aquitaine's first audience with his uncle Charles IV, who received him kindly. Two days later, the Prince did homage to Charles at the Royal Hunting Lodge at Bois-de-Vincennes in the presence of the Queen, his mother, and many English lords. Immediately afterwards, Charles ordered the withdrawal of French troops from Gascony. Edward was now hoping that the Agenais would soon be returned to him, but shortly afterwards Charles informed him that he intended to retain that territory as indemnity for French losses suffered during the war. Strickland suggests that Isabella had deliberately arranged this in order to give herself a further pretext for staying on in Paris. But it may be that King Charles himself had conceived it as a strategy for keeping the heir to England in France and wresting every advantage out of Edward. During her stay in France, Isabella had earned the support of several men at her brother's court, notably her cousin Robert of Artois. She also became a magnet for a group of disaffected Englishmen, among them exiles who were the enemies of the King of England but who had gained the Queen's favour. It's not known exactly when these men switched their allegiance to Isabella, but it's probable that her support expanded over a period of months. Some of her new adherents, like Sir John Meltravers, had escaped from England after Boroughbridge. The rest, like John Lord Ross, had other scores to settle with Edward and the Dispensers. Both the Queen and these men had one thing in common their loathing of the favourites. Isabella's chief supporter at this time appears to have been the Earl of Richmond, who'd served as the principal English envoy in France since the previous year. He'd been greatly offended by the dispensers, and was now one who was of the affinity of the Queen and was often in her company both before and after the homage. The king recalled him many times, but he repeatedly ignored these summons. Another who detached attached himself to the Queen's party was the king's own brother, the Earl of Kent. Kent had returned to France on August 25th in company with Surrey, who'd been appointed captain of the English forces in Aquitaine. On October 6th, Kent was to obtain from the Pope a dispensation permitting him to marry Margaret, the daughter of John, Lord Wake, and a cousin of Roger Mortimer. Her mother and his were sisters. The marriage took place in December 1325. Margaret's brother, Thomas, Lord Wake, had once been the Queen's ward and was now with Isabella in Paris. Bishop Ehrman who owed his sea to Isabella, became another member of this cabal. A prudent and circumspect man, efficient and experienced, he was a natural ally of the Queen, not only on account of her earlier intervention with the Pope on his behalf, but also because he was seriously out of favour with the King after Baldock's expulsion from Norwich. Henry de Beaumont, had long been Isabella's friend, and, like her, a victim of the dispenser's spite. He had his finger on the pulse of political opinion in the north of England, and was able to tell her that a majority of Edward's subjects there had turned against him, many having been irrevocably alienated by Edward's failure to deal effectively with the Scottish raiders. In time, Beaumont would return to England to sound out the northern lords as to where their loyalty really lay. Beaumont's fellow envoy, Bishop Stratford, was also sympathetic towards the Queen, as was John, Lord Cromwell, who had accompanied her to France in March. Both were men whom Edward had obviously thought he could trust, so it must have come as a shock when Cromwell repeatedly defied his orders to return. Stratford was more subtle, and there was no open breach between him and the king. But the evidence suggests that his true loyalties lay with Isabella. Someone who joined the Queen later in Paris was the prince's former tutor, Richard de Berry, who, in his capacity as young Edward's official receiver in Gascony, had been illicitly diverting revenues to the Queen for which he only narrowly escaped arrest by fleeing to the French court. Berry had long since discovered in Isabella a kindred spirit with a love of books, and his first loyalty was to her and the Prince, who was always to look on him with great favour. Judging by how promptly they were to come to Isabella's support the following year, Leicester and Norfolk, Earl Marshal of England, and a young man of wild and wicked character, must have been in secret communication with her for some time. Although both were close kin to the king, neither was prepared to endure the tyranny of the dispensers for any longer than necessary, while Lancaster had his own deadly score to settle, for he wanted revenge for the execution of his brother and restitution of the Lancastrian inheritance. In Isabella, both he and Norfolk saw an ally who was well placed to take action against the favourites. According to Ian Mortimer, earlier intelligence reports sent back to England show that some of the exiles had in the past kept company with Roger Mortimer as he moved around the continent. It's possible, therefore, that they were still in touch with him. Perhaps, too, They were in contact with Mortimer's partisan, Adam Alton, Bishop of Hereford, who was to prove himself a staunch supporter of Isabella in 1326. It's not unfeasible that the exiles were also negotiating with Mortimer himself, with a view to securing his support for the Queen. Isabella now began to hold secret conferences with her supporters and came to rely on their counsel. In so doing, she gave offence to those officials who'd been sent by Edward to give her guidance, and who now expressed surprise at the Queen's conduct in consorting with her husband's known enemies. Charles IV must have known about these secret talks, at which the chief topic was doubtless the dilemma in which Isabella found herself. Should she go home, as her husband was commanding, and risk incurring the fury of Dispenser, or could she contrive to stay in France? For more than a year, Isabella was to insist that her quarrel was with the Dispensers alone. Yet there is evidence, as we will see, that the exiles surrounding her were bent on targeting the king as well and it seems that they did their utmost to persuade the Queen that she would be justified in lending her support to the overthrow of a weak and tyrannical regime. Isabella initially may well have resisted this scheme and apparently spent weeks agonising over what course she should take, which would explain why she didn't deliver Edward any ultimatum regarding the dispensers until November and why she continued to send cordial letters to the favourite. Avoiding any criticism of Hugh, or an open breach, would make life easier for her if she was forced to return to England. Charles's retention of the Agenie left Edward seething with rage. Too late, he attempted to reassume the rights he had just devolved upon his heir. But Charles was having none of it, and declared the whole duchy forfeit, much to the king's horror. Later, the French king was to send a force into Gascony to defend the prince's tenure. As far as the peace was concerned, Isabella's mission had been in vain, but it was to serve another, more sinister purpose. Edward was also simmering with anger against his envoys in France, airmen and Richmond, who he was convinced had betrayed him over the treaty. He ordered their arrest and brought a case against the absent airmen in the court of King's Bench. The King was now beginning to be perturbed by Isabella's failure to return home and the fact that she had his heir in her custody, a circumstance of which he seems to have feared, and with good reason, that Charles IV might take advantage. Now that the treaty had been concluded and the homage performed, he saw no reason for Isabella and Prince Edward to stay in France. Isabella, on the other hand, had every reason to keep her son with her. Having the heir to England in her control gave her every advantage. Not only was he Edward's heir, but Edward was also very fond of the boy and Isabella was aware that the threat of him being kept in France would be a powerful bargaining counter in forcing her husband to banish the dispensers. Edward might regard her as dispensable, but he couldn't do without his son and heir. Moreover, the prince was a valuable asset in the dynastic marriage market, and could be used by his mother as a means of forging an alliance that would assure her of political and military support in her quarrel with Edward. That Isabella came to contemplate going to such lengths to get rid of the dispensers shows how deadly was her hatred of them. But it makes even more sense in the context of her considering another agenda entirely, in the event of edward failing to cooperate in which case she would endeavor to bring about the deposition of the king himself in favor of his son for if isabella defied edward to the extent of allying with his enemies and marrying off his heir against his father's will how could she ever hope to be reconciled to him the prince was the key to the success of such a daring scheme, and with him in her possession, and the backing of Charles IV, Isabella was in a very strong position. It's been suggested that Isabella also kept the prince in France because she was aware that Charles IV had, as yet, no male heir, and was hopeful that he might name this promising boy, his nephew, as his successor, in the event of Queen Jeanne, "'failing to bear sons. "'This is possible. "'It's certain, too, that the presence of the heir to England in France crystallized the ambitions of the English exiles. "'Soon after Michaelmas, Edward wrote to Isabella, "'advising that she should escort her son back to England as soon as possible. "'Isabella replied that the King of France was treating them with great kindness,' and all but keeping them there against their will. Not satisfied with this, Edward began sending Isabella further commands and entreaties to come home, and ordered Stratford to broach the matter with the Queen and Charles IV. During their discussions, Isabella expressed her anger over the sequestration of her estates, and her fears that she wouldn't be safe in England. The bishop insisted that she would come to no harm, but she was evidently not reassured by this and tried again to put Edward off with a succession of flimsy and frivolous excuses. On October 18th, the king complained to the Pope about Charles's retention of the Agne. He also expressed his mounting concern about the unwanted prolongation of the Queen's visit to France. Isabella was now spending much of her time with King Charles and Queen Jeanne, and the news she told them from England gave them little pleasure. Much of it concerned the activities of Walter Stapledon, Bishop of Exeter. Bishop Stapledon had known that he was not welcome in France. It was said that, because he was closely associated with the dispensers, If he ever set foot in that kingdom, he would be tortured. Before he left England, he'd confided his fears for his safety to the king, who'd asked Isabella for an undertaking that the bishop would come to no harm, which she readily gave. Despite this, he was treated by French courtiers and officials as if he were guilty of some crime, which seems to have made him somewhat paranoid. Prior to his departure... Stapleton had been commanded by Edward to raise a loan to help meet the expenses of Isabella's household. But the money was only to be given to her once she'd agreed to return with Stapleton to England. Clearly, Edward had, from the first, been edgy at the prospect of Isabella being in France with his heir in her custody. Stapleton had so far failed to raise the loan, He didn't like what he saw of the Queen's activities in Paris, especially the favours shown by her to the English exiles, who were now clustering around her. And he was greatly perturbed by the intelligence that had come to him concerning the intrigues of this group, who were apparently plotting nothing less than the murder of the King, an act of the most heinous treason. This is the earliest evidence for this being the ultimate aim of Edward's enemies. Stapleton was never to accuse Isabella directly of being a party to such treason, but it's hard to believe that she was unaware of what was being discussed by the members of her circle. That she should sanction or engage in discussions concerning the regicide of her husband, the king, which was then regarded as one of the most dreadful and sacrilegious crimes that could be committed, and carried with it terrible penalties, is testimony to the virulence of her bitter anger against Edward and to the change in her character that had been brought about by his and the dispensers' ill-treatment of her during the past years. Above all, her actions at this time must have been dictated by her fear of returning to face the wrath of the dispensers and the king, who, she knew from bitter experience, couldn't be trusted to keep his word and doubtless she was being pressured by those who were convinced that the removal of Edward II was a political necessity after years of his inflicting misgovernment and rapacious favourites upon his subjects. Stapledon was so horrified at what he'd learned that he was desperate to return to England without delay and was seeking for a way to do so without alerting anyone to his suspicions. Without a doubt, Isabella did not like Stapleton. He was too closely associated with the Dispenser administration to be any friend to her, and he had a reputation for being unreasonably avaricious. During his term of office as treasurer, he had become remarkably rich, whence it seemed that he had made his wealth by extortion rather than by honest dealing. Unsurprisingly, he was excluded from the Queen's secret conferences, and she refused to entertain him or receive any letters from him, sending them back unread through Stratford. But she could not let his failure to raise the loan pass and summoned him to her presence. This must have been before October 22nd, on which date she left Paris to visit Le Bourget and Reims with her son. She wouldn't return until November 12th, by which time... "'Stapleton would be back in England. "'Their interview must have left her more convinced than ever "'that the dispensers must be removed, "'and him painfully aware that she was impervious "'to any influence he might try to exert over her. "'Isabella began by reminding Stapleton "'that he had been commanded by the King "'to help finance her stay in Paris, but had done nothing.' He, in turn, lied to her that the king had written, summoning him home, whereat Isabella demanded to see the letter. Of course, Stapleton couldn't produce it, although he said he would do so. By now, he must have made it obvious to Isabella that he was fearful of staying in France and wanted to return to England forthwith, but she forbade him to do so without her permission. Undoubtedly, she was concerned about her funds and expected him to obey his orders, but she was also almost certainly alarmed at what he might have found out. It's significant that, soon after this interview, Stapleton received a death threat. This suggests that Isabella knew exactly what the English exiles were plotting and that, before she left Paris, she warned them they might be exposed. "'The consequence of this was that someone threatened Stapleton, "'not dreaming that he would defy the Queen's order to stay in Paris. "'On October 31st, Bishop Stapleton suddenly arrived back in England "'and hastened to the royal headquarters at Porchester Castle in great distress. "'Certain of the King's banished enemies,' he warned Edward, "'were plotting to kill him. "'His own life had been threatened,' and he'd secretly escaped from France under cover of darkness, disguised as a merchant or pilgrim. It was claimed that he'd left behind his household to pretend he was there. But his expense account shows that every one of his retinue of 49 men, along with 32 horses, accompanied him, and that they travelled in three ships. This suggests that his flight had been planned carefully in advance. Stapleton now urged the king to demand the immediate return of the queen and the prince. Evidently, Stapleton felt embarrassed about the precipitous and undoubtedly rude manner in which he'd deserted the queen and left the French court, for he had the grace to write to her, excusing his conduct, taking care not to apportion any blame to her. On November 14th, probably as a result of Stapleton's revelations, Edward apparently ceased paying Isabella's expenses, for her accounts came to an abrupt end on that date. Evidently, he was not prepared to finance her self-imposed exile any longer. It was probably this that hardened Isabella's resolve against